Good morning, Idlewild Bible Church family. How is everyone? How's the married couple? <laughs> awesome. All right. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I've ever been so terrified to preach a sermon at IBC. This is, we're, we're going to get into some stuff. People have very strong feelings and opinions on things. And it's a, it's a tough subject to tackle in our evangelical churches today. So um, if you see Wayne here next week preaching, you'll know what happened. So. Uh, okay, Luke chapter 5. Verse 33, just bear with me. Forgive me if you need to. Uh, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the old will not match, or the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts on, puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Let us pray. Our merciful God, we thank you for giving us this beautiful Sunday morning to gather uh, and to worship you and community. God, we surrender our hearts to you and our minds that we might be made clean by the washing of your word. Teach us to follow you rightly. Lord, cause us to receive your holy scriptures with holy submission and in awe this morning. Help us to understand grace, to see ourselves who we are, and to treat others as you would treat them with your grace. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would dwell powerfully with us as we open your holy word, as we receive that which you have given us to know you and your good character by. We give this time over to you and to your word. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. I heard a story of a prominent pastor and his wife who visited, if I'm not mistaken, it was London that they visited, on a ministry trip, international trip. They gathered at this restaurant with their British ministry counterparts. They were appalled that all of the British ministry leaders ordered beer to go with their meal. As the waiter came around to the pastor's wife, she ordered a cup of coffee instead. And the British counterparts turned to the pastor, shocked. And to see what he would do about that, they wondered if he was okay with his wife drinking coffee. We're examining a text here where Jesus begins to use illustrations or parables to communicate biblical truths. And part of this text leaves even the most informed and spirit-filled scholars with a lot of questions. But where we are left with scratching our heads, we are also given some very clear and pointed truths about the damage to our faith and to the faith of others that legalism can spread. While there are some questions, 
There is no question that Luke, in his gospel, which is given by God's inspiration, wants his audience to see how destructive it is to measure the faith of others by our own behavioral standards. Chapter 5, verse 33. You'll keep your finger on Luke 5 for the duration of the morning. So we jump around a little bit. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. There are two important things to consider as far as context here. The first is that immediately, this, this here is immediately following the calling of Levi, the tax collector. The Pharisees had taken exception to Jesus because he and his disciples were associating themselves with known sinners. They ate and drank with them. In fact, let's go back there. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Leaving everything behind, he rose and followed him. Levi made him a great feast in this house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we continue, And he said to them, the disciples of John fast often offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. You see, as far as the narrative in Luke is concerned, this is just part of the same conversation. But when we look at Matthew and Mark, we actually see some nuances. And so let's look at that. Mark 9.14. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not. And then in Mark 2, verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? See, Matthew identifies John's disciples as the ones asking. Mark is more general. It almost seems contradictory, but there are a multitude of possibilities here, and None of it changes the meaning of the text or what God is conveying through the passage. Could simply be that there was more than one group of people present, that they were all in agreement with the questions being asked. Could be a question asked and answered in the same way more than once, you know, a few different times. The narrative flows seamlessly from the calling of Levi to this, but it doesn't have to mean that no time had passed. Could also be that each gospel writer had a different vantage point from which they observed the information, heard, from, heard of the information, and so addressed it from that position. One thing we can observe, though, is the strong influence that the Pharisee party had on what the Jewish people considered to be faithful religious practice towards God. We're told that John's disciples fast and pray, and the Pharisees do the same. R.C. Sprawl calls the Pharisees the arch-conservatives of the Jewish people. They were the ones who promoted what they felt was the purest form of worship, which was the most consistent with the plain meaning of the Law and the Prophets, or the Old Testament. The Old Testament commands fasting on one occasion, and that is the Day of Atonement. Uh, that is in Leviticus. I don't know why I have such a problem with Leviticus. It's every time. 
Leviticus 16, verse 29 to 31. <coughs> this is going to be a running joke my entire career. I can't say Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 16, 29 to 31. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and do no work, either native or stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. That afflicting of oneself, it's a self-denial or a fast. It's to go without eating. So at this point, tradition though, when we get to Jesus and the Pharisees here, tradition required Jews to fast twice a week, or for at least part of the day. And then the teaching had developed to the point that fasting was such a righteous act that it would be bring merit to the one fasting. But fasting is not about merit. Most of the time, fasting is an act of repentance. In fact, that's what it is in Leviticus. Instead of making one righteous, it recognizes a failure to be righteous. Joel 2, 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. You, you may recall the city of Nineveh fasting. Remember we had a series in Jonah before we got to Luke. They fasted in repentance. Jonah 3, 5, and 5 through 9, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish but like we so often do, the Pharisees did not want to recognize their own unrighteousness. They wished for others to see how righteous they were. And so they, they used the very thing that pointed to unrighteousness to prove their righteousness. It's called self-righteousness. We could do that with flaunting as well. We do that, uh, you know, or even how we present ourselves with false humility flaunting what we do or don't do. I, I can tell you that I'm a filthy, rotten sinner saved only by the blood of Jesus. This is true. I can even honestly say for myself that I think that Paul called himself the chiefest of sinners because I hadn't been born yet. Even though it's a little tongue-in-cheek, it's still true in a sense, to me at least, <laughs> as I know myself better than I know Paul. But those things can also be contrived. How are you today? Oh, I'm just a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner saved only by the blood of Jesus. Oh, praise you. Right? Have you seen that contrived, like, false humility come out of people, right? And you're like, come on, please. You know? Right? It's, it's one thing to acknowledge it. It's another thing to try to use it to prove your piety. 
to other people. Now, for the Pharisees, their means of proving their righteousness was to put very strict behaviors into practice. R.C. Sproul said this, the legalist legislates where God leaves people free. He takes the you may and turns it into the you must. And that is absolutely fatal to a healthy Christian life. The Pharisees who considered themselves the ultimate standard of righteousness were the fathers of this kind of legalism. The Pharisees were doing, and what we do today is to promote the idea that we can somehow earn favor with God or we can earn our way into heaven by doing good works or obeying the Bible. Before we deny believing such a heretical teaching, remember that we always act according to what we believe. And I think some of us, and I've done it, act exactly like that's what we believe. Jesus made a scathing indictment against the Pharisees in Matthew 23. It takes up the entire chapter, all 39 verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let's read a few verses starting in verse 4. It says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Verse 23, if you jump down, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining in a gnat to swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. For you, so you also, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You, you see, the Pharisees dealt with behavior. And we often paint Christianity to be more like AA or some self-help group. We present models and methods of behavior modification and emphasize the importance of acting differently, which we will if we're Christians, but you know, we can change our own behavior ourselves. We can change our own behavior, but we cannot change our hearts. And that's why so many evangelical Christians today, and I'm not knocking evangelicals, we are evangelical Christians here, but we've become, many of us, legalists, like, much like the Pharisees were. It's because they changed their behaviors. They, and we can change our behavior. If we change our behavior, that's something we could be proud of, right? You made yourself outwardly righteous, yay, right? That's, that's what self-righteousness is. But only God can transform the heart. Only the Holy Spirit can overcome our wicked hearts and change us from the inside out. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, 
From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. See, legalism often comes as a result of good intentions. We see where, set, uh, where sin is, and then we set boundaries to keep ourselves from the temptations that could lead to sin. Now, that's not a bad thing, right? That actually could be a very good thing. But what happens is that we have a tendency to turn those boundaries into doctrines. We also use lines of reasoning to uh, arrive at a standard of behavior and then impose that standard of behavior on all Christ followers. I'll give you an example here. I'm going to get into a strong example with the last few verses here, but here are a couple of others. How about this one? Music is a form of worship. If it's not worshiping God, it's worshiping something else. Therefore, if you listen to secular music, it is sinful idolatry not to, enjoy, not to be enjoyed by the faithful Christian. I've heard this one, right? And it may be a good conviction, but where it becomes legalism is when the, we then impose that upon other Christians, right? Uh, we can't know where a person's heart is as they enjoy various forms of entertainment. So accusing them of idolatry because they listen to Neil Diamond or Metallica or some other band, you know. Um, now, boy bands, you have to reject them. But <laughs> that's a different story. So, but... But accusing them of idolatry could in fact be a more certain sin. The same sin that Jesus accused the Pharisees of. Here's another one. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. So a Christian who smokes cigarettes is sinning against God by profaning his temple. Have you heard that one? I've heard that one. Right? Anyone who claims that argument and then also eats Doritos... Right? Or drink soda that contain how how many how much soda does not contain either high fructose corn syrup or aspartame, right? Like, or or eats fast food. They at McDonald's there's actually a warning label on the drive-up window. <laughs> Cigarettes, you don't want it. it's in here somewhere, <laughs> right? Like, how many obese pastors do we see getting up to preach against the dangers of alcohol and tobacco? Right? I can make a much better health argument for not smoking cigarettes. They're bad. Like, seriously. I don't need the Bible to tell me not to smoke a cigarette. Right? Like, I mean, the data's compelling. Let's, let's do that. Let's use the data. Like, one of my close friends died with COVID because his lungs couldn't handle it. They were shot. He had COPD from smoking his whole life, and his liver was destroyed because he drank too much. That, I, that's a pretty strong argument right there. Right? Why do we have to make the Bible say something when we can make a better argument using data and not forcing something into God's mouth? When we take general wisdom like that and then we force a spiritual meaning to it, we tend to hyper-spiritualize things, which is a form, I think, of self-righteousness. Are boundaries good? Yes. <laughs> boundaries are good. Agree with me. Boundaries are good. Yes. Okay. Do we need to apply a strict set of boundaries on one another to make sure that we're all living righteous and holy lives before God? I mean, it's what the Pharisees did, and Jesus opposed them more than any other group. This is where I get fired, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> right? I mean, 
The Pharisees questioned the disciples of Jesus because they didn't behave as righteously as other Jews. It's the way it was, right? They, They were hanging out with all the wrong people. They were eating and drinking when the Jews were supposed to fast. We're also going to see later that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. The disciples picked grain to eat on the Sabbath, both of which were forbidden by the Pharisees who had applied such Sabbath laws to produce in them holiness. Let's move on to verse 34. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. The second part here, this piece is a little bit difficult to understand, but we know that Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom. He is the promised Messiah, and he's with them physically. When a couple during that time was married in that culture, they would not run off on a honeymoon right away. They would hold a party that would last a full week. Like, I get tired at like a two-hour reception. They're partying for a whole week, right? That's that's insane. Don't say the Jews didn't know how to have fun, right? It would include all the fancy clothes, good food, fine wine, all the family friends or family and friends would, would they'd eat and they'd drink to the joy of the happy new couple. And Jesus is showing that he, the bridegroom, is present with them. It's a time of celebrating, not mourning. And fasting indicated mourning, particularly over sinfulness. Back in chapter 2, we read about Anna. Do you remember Anna? She spent her life fasting and praying day and night in the temple, right? Uh, She was waiting, right? And that was appropriate. My youngest daughter is Anna. It's a beautiful name. I love it. And we're waiting for the return of Christ. Maybe she'll fast and then Jesus will come and we'll, you know, I don't know. But, But that was an appropriate time to fast. So, so at the time there was that Jesus came, though, there's no need to fast because Jesus is physically with them. Now, there's a resurgence of fasting in the early church after Jesus was crucified because no, he's no longer physically there. Now, there are a couple ideas here. One of them is that fasting is appropriate now because he is physically gone. We're awaiting his return. The other is that fasting is not necessary since we celebrate his resurrection and his presence with us. Remember, he promised that. In fact, we read that last week in Matthew 28, verse 20. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. And in Matthew 18, 20, this is a church discipline one, but it, it applies further. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So I would say that, that while there's no requirement to fast, it is a good practice for our prayer life. Remember we talked about mourning over our sinfulness? And we mentioned there are some Christian traditions that observe what's called Ash Wednesday um, because ash represents mourning. Um, the ash isn't the fast or anything. They put, a little, they put a little ash cross. The priest or pastor will put a cross on their head and it's a reminder to them of their mourning over their sinfulness. It's repentance. And following Ash Wednesday is a period of 40 days minus Sundays that leads up to Easter that's called Lent. And it's a fast. It's a very old fast. Perhaps even some of the apostles observed that fast. It has taken on many shapes and sizes over the centuries, but in almost all places that is observed today, it's a fast from something that is important to the person that's fasting. 
For example, I think many of us here would, would uh, affirm this, fasting from coffee would be a pretty significant fast, right? Every time you wake up and don't drink your coffee, it would be a reminder for you. The headache would be a reminder for you of your sinfulness leading to Christ's death. And then it would remind you to pray repentantly. Now, there's two things that that does. The first is that it does wonders for your prayer life. And secondly, when Easter comes and you break that fast, remember, it can't be a fast if you don't break it, right? You have to break it. The celebration of Christ's resurrection coming out of that long fast, is it, it just, the fact that he's conquered your sin, it just brings a, a whole new uh, significance there, I think, in us. It, so, so you're ending a period of mourning and going into celebration, but unfortunately, in some traditions, Lent and Ash Wednesday have gone from a very good thing to a very bad thing. Why? Legalism. Legalism. In fact, in the early church, later early church, and it was actually required to the point that if a priest did not observe it, he would be deposed. It was very serious to them. It was a requirement. But listen, Lent is not in the Bible. There's nothing in Scripture that we could point to that would make such an observance necessary. But some traditions have imposed that on Christians as a whole, and that's where it becomes legalism. This is where we have to be reminded not to hold other believers to our convictions. Fasting is good. Some of us fast and pray regularly. That is good. Others fast and pray occasionally. That's fine too. Yet others do not fast at all for one reason or another. But if that's your conviction, great. But make sure you know why you are or why you are not doing something. That's the important thing. He also told them a parable in verse 36, Luke 5, 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts new fabric on a new, an old garment. The, John Nolan said, the high value put on the old may indeed lead to an inappropriate or, or to inappropriate attempts to preserve it. Now, Perhaps that's speaking of the Old and New Covenants. Probably they go together. The New Covenant completes the Old. But because there's a change in practice because, uh, between the two, uh, the systems involved cannot be combined without destroying both. You can't have communion and animal sacrifice at the same time. Animal sacrifices were a foreshadowing of what Messiah would do to atone for sin. Communion remembers the finished work of Christ on the cross. They go together, but they're incompatible as concurrent practices. Does that make sense? In the same way, if you put new wine into old wineskins, both will be ruined. This is verse 37 through 39. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. It will, will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. Now here's where we can look at a number of layers in our own church context. And I want to be careful because there are people 
who have some very strong opinions on feel uh, and feelings on, on some of the surrounding issues. And I don't want to offend people. I don't want to hurt people. I don't, I don't want to uh, uh, push back against anyone's convictions. But I also have to be honest. I must refuse to force the Bible to say something that it does not say. God forbid I should put words into his mouth. There's been a lot of misinformation spread from pulpits over the last 150 years on this topic. But because information is readily available to us at all times, we, we, we must not just accept ignorance because our pastor says it and spread it. Because when we do that, it will call into question our entire worldview. The first piece of that is called, uh, or, or is, is dealing with new wine. And, and, and the, the suggestion is that it didn't contain alcohol or very much alcohol at all. It's simply untrue. It's just simply not. The grapes ferment immediately. Aside from the unnatural pasteurization process developed by Thomas Welsh in 1869, the only non-alcoholic grape juice is a grape. Uh, what, once you squeeze the grape, the yeasts on the skin cause a chemical reaction with the sugars inside the grape, which begin a very rapid fermentation process. And the fermentation causes gases that expand, so wine skins would be stretched. So if you used an older, hardened wine skin, it would crack and break, ruining both the wine and the wine skin. Wine is fully fermented in a very short time, and you, you wouldn't drink it during that time. It wouldn't taste any good. It would be terrible. Um, It'll ferment in two or three weeks, entirely. Um, and the reason we don't drink it that fresh, even three, four, five weeks, is because it tastes terrible. Uh, once it's fermented, the alcohol begins to blend the flavors, um, the different things that in the wine there. And it's ready to drink in about six months or so. Uh, but the longer that you age it, the more mature and complex the flavor becomes. And once the wine was fermented, they may also, so in those two, three weeks, less than a month, you could also transfer that into an old wine skin because that old wine skin uh, would have a film on the inside that would improve, I guess, the flavor profile as it ages. R.C. Sproul said, what Jesus is saying is simple. You can't just take the kingdom of God and the arrival of Jesus and put it on top of the Pharisees' traditions. It won't fit. By extension... You can't have Christ and squeeze him into your old life and expect it to work. See, because Jesus is going to change us if we repent and surrender to him. Since Jesus brought it up, let me use the wine thing as an illustration of the overall topic of discussion, which is legalism. This is where I get in trouble. Um, we could use fasting or tithing or music or movies or diet or any other number of activities, but this one is especially difficult for a lot of Christians. And so I'm going to bring it up because I guess I make poor choices. I don't know. But it, 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 can be very, it can be a very weighty issue for people. Again, I know some of us have strong feelings, but let's be honest about our convictions. And please hold to your convictions. Absolutely hold to your convictions. But still we have to be very careful what we impose on other believers. Romans 14.5 says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then if you jump to verse 14, it says, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So we're bound by the scriptures to hold to our convictions. We're also bound to love one another when it comes to our liberties. Addressing food sacrifice to idols, Paul basically says, don't ask questions. It isn't going to hurt you. An imaginary God only has imaginary power. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 8. 1 Corinthians 8, 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do eat and no better off, or if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge of eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat it, or I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So it's almost, it's almost saying like, if you're going to have a beer and this other person is going to see you do that and think that you, you have no problem with being drunk and then they go out and get drunk, that's a problem, right? But when Paul says that he wouldn't eat meat for the sake of the weaker believer, it never tells us that he ever did it. It never tells us that he ever stopped eating meat. He just said he would be willing to. And as should we. It wasn't, this was, this was for me to, to consider and to wrestle over in my own heart, for you to consider and to wrestle over in your own hearts. It's not a talking point to impose a particular belief on our brothers and sisters. I've heard people, even a few prominent pastors, suggest that the wine didn't have alcohol or didn't have as much alcohol as it does today. Not possible, but that's what they said. They also point to the fact that it was common to mix wine and water. The first thing is that some would actually dilute the wine. This is true. They would dilute the wine because wine was expensive. And they would do that to rip people off, um, oftentimes. That was probably the main reason it would have been done, uh, to be dishonest and take advantage of people. Now, there's no evidence from any primary source that anyone diluted the wine to just simply reduce the effects. Um, it could have happened. There's just no evidence it ever did. Uh, you would, however put wine, between 20 and 50% wine, into the water because the water was rancid and disgusting, had bacteria in it. Uh, and the, the alcohol in the wine would help to kill a lot of that bacteria. They, they, didn't, they didn't water down the wine so much as they wind down the water. In fact, everyone, including the children, that's what they would be drinking for breakfast, lunch, dinner, anytime they had water, that's what they would drink. So when the Bible talks about wine, this isn't, you know, that's not what it's referring to. That's water. Wine is wine. 10 to 16, 17% alcohol wine. That's what it's talking about. And the more white, ripe that the grapes were, the higher the alcohol content would be, the better it would taste. It's been that way as long as there have been grapes. But still people will insist that Jesus and his disciples could never have drank real wine. I don't know. They sure talk a lot about it for people who don't drink it. But that's, I don't know. Did God ever impose a law against drinking alcoholic beverages? 
The honest answer is no. We have to be honest. There are serious warnings, though, about abusing alcohol. And so if you're an alcoholic, or you have a tendency to, when you, you can't stop with just one, that's something, then the answer, biblically, would be no, because it's abuse. It, there, there's a, there are warnings about abusing alcohol. But normal use in the Bible is always mentioned in a positive way. Ecclesiastes 9.7, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. What's, what, what Solomon's saying there is eventually you're going to die, so enjoy your life, right? Um, Psalm 104, 14 to 15, that's, that's hard to hear from a pulpit because we're always, we're always like, oh, don't enjoy, give a, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Yes, these are true, right? But he also doesn't want us to be miserable. That's not what, the Bible doesn't teach that, right? Psalm 104, 14 to 15, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. See, this is a praise involving that. Proverbs 31, 6. Uh, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. So it can be used medicinally in a good way. But like every other good thing, God calls us to be sober-minded and responsible. Right? Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. And do not get drunk with wine. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery or excess. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do do you see? This is saying that true happiness comes from godly worship and fellowship, not from intoxication. Intoxication is only a weak substitute for what God has given us. Why do you think that they tried to shut down churches as unessential and keep liquor stores open as essential services during COVID? You can't convince me Satan wasn't involved in that. That, Right? Because you can agree that God's processes and that you can agree that wine is in in, in one context good and still say that this is a distraction. This is a problem, right? Proverbs 21 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever's led astray by it is not wise. But here's the thing. We have to be honest. Both of these texts call out overindulging as excessive and unwise, but neither is a prohibition. And neither says it's unwise to partake at all. But drunkenness and addiction are harmful. It's wisdom. We shouldn't need the Bible to tell us that, but we do, (laughs) right? But here's the thing. If we force something into the text that isn't there, we're not being honest, and we end up calling our entire worldview into question. If we make the Bible say something that it doesn't say, 
what right do we have to expect others to listen to us about God's word? If you think alcohol is bad for society, by all means, go with that, right? We have cars. People drive them drunk, and they put their own lives and everyone else's lives at risk, right? That's a good reason to oppose the use of alcohol. A lot of families are ruined by alcohol abuse. Good reasoning to oppose the use of alcohol. Here's one that I've heard. I can't count the number of times. The Bible says it's a poor decision to get drunk. And if you don't drink, you can't get drunk. Therefore, faithful, faithful Christians shouldn't drink. I'm going to propose to you that that's a bad argument. It's a line of reasoning that paints Christians who don't share your convictions in a bad light. It expands upon what the Bible says to oppose something that the Bible doesn't oppose. It's using the Bible to impose our own convictions on otherwise God-honoring people. It weaponizes Scripture, it's legalism, and it's exactly how the Pharisees opposed Jesus and his disciples. Listen, if you don't think legalism is a big issue, or if you're not concerned about the dangers that you might slip into it unaware, just remember that it was what the Pharisees used to oppose the Lord. Alcohol can be destructive, but in the spiritual sense, legalism, I believe, is more destructive than alcohol. We need to be asking ourselves if there's a disconnect with how we view others and how God's grace views others. Is there a disconnect there? What would be our first thought if we saw one of our church leaders over there in the brew pub with a locally brewed beer? What if we were to find out that someone in our church hasn't tithed in more than three months? Do we judge our brothers and sisters at IBC based on how we perceive their financial priorities? What kind of movies they go to see? Or what's in their fridge? We need to be honest. First, new wine is not grape juice. Jesus drank good wine. Jesus served good wine. There are also warnings about overindulging in the Bible. There's a summary. But should the Bible even have to tell us that? It's common sense, right? Nobody wakes up with a gnarly hangover glad that they drank so much the night before. Like, it doesn't happen, right? How many of you are like, you know, have those great memories of waking up like that? The fact that the Bible does have to warn us of that that we should seek the filling of the Spirit instead of the filling of booze, that a pastor shouldn't be a drunk, the deacon shouldn't be all that much of a drunk, back over in 1 Timothy 3, it demonstrates clearly that alcoholism was a problem back then too. It's always been an issue. And we need to approach it with wisdom. If we, when we're honest with the Scriptures, when we are honest with the Scriptures, it gives both us and our Bibles more credibility when we're honest. If you can't support a doctrine with the Bible, appeal to other things. Appeal to other things. There are things out there that you can appeal to, but please don't force your opinions into the Scriptures. The Bible isn't all about behavior modification. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's about Christ in us. 
Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit in us. The best the world can do is a superficial outward change. But Christ can change us from the inside out. According to R.C. Sproul, the idea that someone can become a Christian and never change is blasphemy. And I agree with him. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then do, as you, do, do what you want. Because if you do it in that order, you're going to be resisting sin. And that's the behavioral objective of justification. The things you want if you do those things, will be in alignment with God's will. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That means the desires of your heart will be coming from Him. What I'm not saying is that Christians should be drinking alcohol. I'm not saying that. But I'm also not saying that they shouldn't. That's not the point. None of that's the point. The point isn't about what Christians can and can't do. It's about how we assess the behaviors of our brothers and sisters in Christ and about what Jesus is doing in our own lives. There's an appropriate time to call out sin. And that appropriate time is when it is sin that we're calling out. If we have to argue something into the scriptures that's not actually there to prove that something is a sin... Should we confront somebody with it? Should we divide over that? Of course not. Christ has called us to unity. James 1, 19 to 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. We have a theme for this year. Anybody remember it? Grace, grace in motion. There we go. How can we put our grace into motion, into a perpetual motion, when it comes to other Christians who behave in a way that makes us uncomfortable, but that we can't necessarily point to a clear sin that they're committing without trying to judge their motives? How can we do that? First, first thing is be honest. In fact, you can even tell them it makes you uncomfortable. That's honest. That's fine. But be honest. We must not impose our convictions onto our brothers and sisters if we're to honor God and be unified. That's what the Pharisees did to oppose Jesus. Remember, we're not dealing with substances or currency or food or entertainment. Jesus is after our hearts. What would it look like for our hearts to be more driven by grace and turned toward Jesus as we go. How would it change the way that we see things? How would it change the way that we see others around us? How would it change how we interact with brothers and sisters that are sometimes vastly different than we are? Our holy God, we surrender our thoughts and our attitudes to you. Thank you that you have chosen to call us, oh, filthy, 
dirty, rotten sinners to follow you. Thank you for cleansing us of our sin that corrupted us. Forgive us, O God, of our sins, for we have not loved you with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We judge unrighteously. We assess the behaviors of other Christians by our own personal standards, and we fail to see our own sinfulness as we look upon the sins of our neighbors. Help us to look instead upon the cross of the Lord Jesus. God, make us holy. Give us the humility to understand who you are, to recognize who we are, and to live redemptively, graciously, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, give us the strength and the will to be obedient to you and to follow you and give us the grace to love one another with Christ-like love. We offer ourselves over to you as living sacrifices of praise as we enter our week and our mission field. And we ask your strength in those things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.